Welcome to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Books Sandwiched In. This is a program series of Knox County Public Library in partnership with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. I'm Rusha Sams, president of Friends. Today, we welcome Julie Gotro, attorney with Knox County Public Defender's Community Law Office. In advocating on behalf of clients accused in the full range of criminal charges and penalties, she spent much of her time and her career visiting jails and prisons and observing what goes on inside. In 2017, she helped establish Face to Face Knox, a local grassroots collective dedicated to restoring in-person visitation in Knox County jails. She works for prisoners' rights, the restoration of voting rights to convicted felons, and amnesty for undocumented immigrants. She's spoken out on issues of privatization and the monetization of basic human needs behind bars. She'll be referencing the book, American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment by Shane Bauer. Welcome, Julie Gotro. Thank you. Yes, my name is Julie Gautreau. I've been a public defender for about 30 years. I'm used to speaking in public, but it's usually when I'm trying to talk a jury into seeing my side of things. So um, if I go into some kind of closing argument vibe, you can stop me and just tell me to come back, you know. So I'm here to talk about this book and issues surrounding it, American Prison by Shane Bauer. Shane Bauer is an investigative journalist. You may remember hearing in the news several years ago about a group of journalists who meandered um, in the mountains too close to Iran. I think they were actually technically in Iran. And they were picked up and uh, suspected of being spies or something like that. They wound up spending quite a bit of time in an Iranian prison. Shane Bauer was one of those journalists. He spent over a year in prison, a good part of that in solitary confinement. So he knows what it's like to be in a situation where you are alone, you are isolated, you have no one, and you have no idea when you are going to get out or if you are going to get out. He left that situation, he came back to the United States, and he got interested in the subject of the American carceral system. And he did a lot of exhaustive research, and he also got himself a stint as a prison guard, a job, at Wynn Correctional Facility in Louisiana. Wynn is a core civic facility. Who is familiar with core civic? Used to be CCA, and at the time that Shane Bauer got his job um, at Wynn, it was a CCA facility. I'm going to tell you about how CCA or the Corrections Corporation of America turned into Core Civic. I hope I don't forget to do that, but we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, this was 2015 when he got his job there. And he got the job, honestly. He applied for it. He said he was a journalist. You know, he didn't hide any facts that would make this too much of a deception. He didn't tell them he was an investigative journalist and that his subject matter was their prison facility. (laughs) But he got the job. He underwent a course of training, if you want to call it that, and um, 
was on the floor guarding prisoners for Core Civic or then CCA for several months. And his book is about that experience in light of the whole history of American corrections, dating back, well, really to the very early days, even before the American Revolution. It specifically talks about the period of history that came after the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves in the South. After slavery ended in the South, there was a big gap for a labor force. And the way that was compensated for, and there's a a lot in the book about this. It's really fascinating. You need to read about. The way that they filled in that gap was to create a system of convict leasing where people who were in prison were rented out by states to private companies to provide free labor to those companies who would then make profits. Um, And the state would get paid their rent, so to speak, for those human bodies, and everybody made money, all right? Let me start with the excerpt, because it happens in Tennessee. There was a company called the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, It was actually an Alabama company, but it operated in Tennessee. Tennessee was so hooked on the income it drew from its TCI lease that it literally went to war for the company. In the 1890s, free miners were beginning to agitate for better working conditions. The company had been paying workers in scrip that could be used only in overpriced company stores, and workers began to organize with national mining unions to demand that TCI pay them in cash. To quell the agitation, TCI management required workers to sign an ironclad contract, this was after they negotiated, that included a no-strike clause, a presumption of right on the company's part in any dispute, and an illegal requirement that workers be paid in script. Miners refused to sign it. The company ordered the prisoners that they leased from the state of Tennessee to tear down the workers' houses and build stockades for additional convicts it would bring in to replace them. The miners were evicted, but a week later, on Bastille Day, 300 of them returned armed with everything from rocks to rifles. They took some 40 convicts from their stockade, put them in boxcars, and sent them to the prison in Knoxville. The state militia escorted the convicts back soon afterward, and 130 troops occupied the makeshift prison. What began as a strike over worker grievances turned into a war against convict leasing, and I think many of you have probably heard of the Coal Creek Wars that happened back in the 1890s. A couple of things resulted from that. Everybody, of course, got beat down. That's what usually happens when miners go to war against the U.S. military, but Convict leasing ended, not because there was a great deal of soul-searching by the state about the morality of it, but they did some soul-searching about how much it cost and whether it was worth all this trouble. So they decided it wasn't, and instead they built a great big prison on a coal seam called Brushy Mountain State Prison, and everybody who was imprisoned in that facility had the privilege of working as a coal miner for the state. The other outcome of that strike, for what it's worth, was unions started developing in Tennessee and and started organizing. 
Here is the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. What it says is that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. What does that mean? The 13th Amendment specifically says, we're not going to allow slavery unless you've been convicted of a crime. In that case, slavery is okay in the United States. That's what that's saying. And so what has happened in the 150 years since then is a lot of people have used that clause in the 13th Amendment to make a lot of money. And that is what Shane Bauer writes about an American prison. That is what he learned out of his experience at Wynn, and he learned what happens when the bottom line is what it's all about, right? It's a little different now. The way that CoreCivic operates, and Geo Group is another giant corporation. It's bigger than CoreCivic. They also do a lot of private prisons. But the way it works is they don't use most of the time anyway, inmates to work or to do anything. They're really just interested in having bodies in the prisons. The state or the federal government pays the corporation a huge amount of money, which they get, of course, from taxpayers, in order to house and care for the inmates. But once those inmates are in the custody of the private corporations, the objective is to not have to spend any more money than absolutely necessary on that care, all right? So they make contracts with companies like Securus to provide information technology. That uh, means if you want to send an email or make a phone call, if you want to have any communication with family on the outside, Uh, you have to pay for it. Your family has to pay for it. So that becomes a commodity. Certain food items and commissary items, you have to buy them. In other words, your family has to put money on your books in order for you to be able to buy things, and they do that by using a financial arm of Securus called JPay, which is like a little bank. It's an ATM transfer, exorbitant finance charges, of course. And so families can quickly go into thousands and thousands of dollars in debt just to make life bearable for their family members who are incarcerated. That is something that happens at all core civic facilities because they basically partner with Securus to provide those services. Then you have the troublesome issue of when people get sick, when they're ill. One of the things that Shane Bauer observes in the facility is the near absence of mental health treatment for people who are in prison. We know, I guess, collectively, it just seems intuitive that a lot of people go to prison because they don't think right. And they have issues sometimes that go back to you know, trauma that they suffered early in life. Sometimes it's mental illness that developed later in life. Sometimes it's trauma that they experienced based on their military service that doesn't get addressed. And very often it's drug addiction, substance abuse. It's the interface of mental illness and drug addiction. It's lots of things. But the vast, overwhelming majority of people who are in prison are not there because they're possessed by the devil and became the Unabomber. They're there 
because they're sick on some level and they are not getting the treatment that they need. And there are instances that Shane Bauer observed and writes about in this book that illustrate how bad that problem is. Uh, medical services, of course, we know healthcare is terribly expensive in the United States. Nobody in jail is insured. When they get sick, according to Shane Bauer's experience, they need to be really sick before they get to see a doctor because especially if they have to be driven out to the hospital, that's going to cost the corporation a lot of money. They don't want to have to pay that. The result of this is Core Civic has been the object of a lot of lawsuits over inmates dying and not getting adequate care. Something that I don't think that Bauer talks about in the book, but that I've learned in my research is a lot of the medical care that is, if you want to call it, provided in these private prison facilities is done remotely. You go to a kiosk and you request medical services and there's a contract with somebody somewhere else, often in another state, and you will sort of interact with your doctor remotely on a screen, and you're also charged for that, by the way. So these are issues that maybe don't touch specifically on slavery, but what Bauer's book does is it explores the history dating back to slavery and moving through the convict leasing system and brings us up to the modern concept or the contemporary concept of privatization. You know, they're not sitting there working for people as slaves, but they are being used as chattel for making profit. It's the same mentality. It's the same concept. The book examines that in detail, and I I don't know if those of you who read it got the same impression I did, but I felt that Bauer writes this in as purely non-judgmental a tone as possible. He just lays the facts out, tells you what his experience was, and the only time he ever talks about moral conflict, it's over his own actions as a guard at that facility. He feels guilty about taking somebody's cell phone that's found when they're tossing cells and looking for contraband because he remembers what it was like to be in solitary confinement in Iran, and knowing that that cell phone is somebody's one link to the outside, one way of maybe communicating with someone that isn't being observed, that isn't being recorded, that isn't being charged. But he felt like he had to take it, and, well, it led to some difficulty with the inmate population, to say the least. He talks about his conflict over even, you know, sort of making friends with some of the guards and, you know, having to operate under some level of deception. He talks about his conflict with knowing that somebody is likely to commit suicide and knowing that he could raise some alarms that would blow his cover. He doesn't do it because the story is too important. He talks about what it's like to be the victim of sexual harassment. Um, He's a guy. He's in the prison. He's clearly not the kind of guy who normally applies to become a prison guard. Everybody kind of recognizes that. But they don't ask too many questions because everybody's just working there because it's a job. You make a little bit better money than you make at McDonald's, maybe not quite as much money as you might get working for Walmart. 
All right, these guys are paid very little. This book also says a lot about the corporate attitude towards its own workers. They're not really adequately trained. They are understaffed. They are at risk all the time of getting hurt themselves on the job, and it hardens them. And Bauer talks about that. He talks about the fact that you know, he was in solitary confinement in Iran. He has nothing but empathy for what it's like to be in that situation. And yet, there is a point towards the end of his stay there where he is actually really pumped about the fact that he finally got some guy to shut up and stop giving him a hard time by being a real bully to that guy. All right, so you see how that type of environment and living that daily existence will eventually harden you. I mean, you've heard of a hard screw in in jail that refers to a, a really tough prison guard. And so you see how mentally people have to turn into maybe the kind of person they didn't plan to be just to get through functioning in their job. This is a great book because it explores every facet of the American correction system in a very clear light, and it invites you to make your own judgments and decisions about what should we be doing? Is this right? Can we, as American people, let this go on? All right? So let me talk about the history of Core Civic just a little bit, since the book is really largely about that company. In 1983, in Nashville, Tennessee, a man named Terrence Huto, I think it's pronounced Huto, who had been a prison guard and warden most of his life, started the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, like I said, in Nashville, Tennessee. And actually, another person who was one of the developers that they don't go into in the book, was somebody who was involved in the creation of the hospital corporation that wound up turning American medical care into a for-profit industry. The, the fact that all these geniuses got together in Tennessee is something that's just always you know, kind of bothered me. But it makes the protests at their shareholders' meetings easier to get to, though. So that happened in 1983, and... Around the same time, Reagan's war on drugs began and the passage by the Clinton administration with bipartisan support in Congress, the 1994 infamous crime bill that basically made lots of things illegal that hadn't previously been illegal or categorized things as felonies that maybe hadn't always been categorized as felonies. And made the punishment for those felonies, most of them nonviolent, worse than what people will get for holding up a bank and pistol whipping somebody during the, the bank robbery, worse than some levels of homicide. I'm talking about going to prison for 100% of your sentence with no possibility for parole for many, many years because you had a certain amount of drugs within a certain amount of distance of a public school, which is more likely to happen when you live in a part of town where there are a lot of schools, public schools or public parks, which means it's more likely to happen in areas with a dense population 
there's more likely to be poverty in an area with very dense populations, and there's more likely to be minorities living in those areas where there's a lot of poverty. And so what you wound up with in the aftermath of the war on drugs and the crime bill in 1994 was an, an astonishing spike in the number of black people who were imprisoned and put in there for a long, long time. And then what happens in prisons is a lot of times people, they get involved in groups that become called gangs, and when they get out, there were in the past 10, 15 years, both in the federal system and in many states, including Tennessee, laws passed for gang enhancement um, in sentencing so that let's say you get in trouble again after you've been in prison if they find out that you were in a gang in prison at your sentencing they can raise the level of the offense that you were convicted of to the, the next level above it and very many times double the amount of time that you serve in prison based on that. Juries aren't told about the history of this. All they're asked to do is to weigh the evidence, decide if somebody's guilty and at the enhancement proceeding they're just asked to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the person, you know, had been maybe active in a gang at some point in their life. And then the judge can really throw them away forever. So there's a history of creating laws that create felons and create sentences to house people for extremely long periods of time. That goes back to the early 1800s. Now, what has happened and I don't mean to jump around, but what has happened since the war on drugs and the creation of these private corrections facilities is more and more of them are getting built. There need to be places to put all these bodies, right? So you pass all these laws to make all these people eligible to be put away forever, and there aren't enough spots in a lot of the state and federal facilities. So these private companies provide space for that. If you go back to the early days of the 1800s, well, let's just go back to after the Civil War. Once the Civil War ended and the convict leasing system was really underway and they needed more and more bodies to provide free labor that they had lost because of that damn Abraham Lincoln, they started creating felonies out of what had been misdemeanors. They started creating stiffer sentences in the aftermath of the Civil War for just petty larceny even, just not stealing very much. And a lot of those people who wound up getting collected for imprisonment and convict leasing were freed black men and women. What happened after they got freed? Do you think there were programs to assist them, you know, with job placement and, you know, educational opportunities? Once they were free, they were on their own. Some of them had to do what they had to do to survive. And for that, they wound up in prison and on chain gangs. That's the history, and that's something that is still going on. We look back at that, and we're like, oh, my God, those were the bad old days. But they're really still happening, but they're in air-conditioned facilities, and so we don't think about it. But Shane Bauer talks about all of that. Everything that I've discussed with you is something that you can learn by reading this book. I um, would like to stop and see if anybody has some questions they would ask. And again, if you would go to the microphone, please. It's a chicken and an egg thing. I wondered if you have any evidence, uh, because a, a lot of us don't necessarily believe that uh, CoreCivic is building 
the prisons because of the changes in the law. Mm -hmm. Some of us have been told from pretty high sources that the changes in the law were encouraged by by the people who were building the prisons. So it's kind of the ultimate vertical integration. It's a business model that says if we don't have prisoners, then we're not gonna be able to make the money in the prison, so we're gonna lobby to create laws that guarantee people will be in the prison. So I don't know if you have any evidence that's true, but a lot of us who used to I mean, work on the Hill have heard that a lot. Thank you, and that happens to be a theory I agree with. Is there a smoking gun? To me, it's just the history and the development of these laws and the development of privatized corrections. That's the evidence. I mean, you look at it, and that's clearly what's going on. It's being treated as capital investment now. This is actually an opportunity for me to talk about how CCA became core civic. In 2015, Shane Bauer had his experience with CCA. In 2016, towards the end of the Obama administration, the Department of Justice announced, and this was in August, I think, of 2016, they announced that they were going to not renew their contracts with ICE. ICE, by the way, builds all those detention centers for undocumented migrants. All those people who are being rounded up are dumped into mostly core civic facilities. This was very dark news for CCA when it was announced that the federal government was not going to continue working with these private companies. It caused their stock value to plummet. It was a real scare for CCA investors. And so in the run-up to the U.S. presidential election in 2016, CCA changed its name to Core Civic. I don't know, it doesn't have the word corrections in it. It has the word civic in it. it sounds nice, I guess. I don't know. It's not, it's not CCA. Also, by the way, there were so many lawsuits that it was just get, becoming untenable. So they were clearly rebranding themselves. And then in November, all their prayers were answered. Donald Trump was elected. When that happened, the next day, stocks skyrocketed in value. It, they were going to be fine. They knew that because... The policy now was going to be, we are going to round these people up, and they are going to need places to stay. And it was just like literally almost Christmas when CoreCivic found this out. And so that construction has been going on. Contracts and leases have been made. And we're talking about millions and millions and millions of taxpayers' dollars being paid to CoreCivic to create space for prisoners who are either cut from the federal government for committing you know, crimes and getting convicted or for people who just cross the border. It is my understanding and it is my firm belief that when a community has a common problem that it cannot solve through individual effort, that is when it forms a government. So we form governments to build roads, provide fire and police protection, and also a justice system, because that can't be done through individual effort. So when we get to these jail, to the jails, and we get to the prisons, that's really a community responsibility. And in the market system, if you produce a better product at a cheaper price, more people will buy it and then you are successful. But that assumes that there is what is called an elastic demand curve. A demand 
curve that responds to the quality and the price of the product. The problem with the privatization of prisons and jails is that there is no elastic demand curve. It, the curve is straight up and down. There is a set demand and the supplier responds to that set demand. So in that situation, how can the supplier possibly make any money? By reducing costs. So it is only economically rational. They are only being rational economic actors, if you will, by depriving prisoners of needed services and needed goods and charging as much as they can get for it. I think that is our fundamental problem here, is the failure of the community through its government, this is a democracy, is the failure of the community through its government to provide the necessities that we've got to provide to people who we've jailed through our social system. In other words, I don't think you can privatize jails and prisons in any just way. People are going to act rationally, and the rational actor is going to reduce goods and services and charge more for what he can. Thank you. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of back scratching that goes on. Core Civic partners with Securus. Um, it's a different com company altogether. See, Core Civic is publicly traded. You can buy stock. Uh, Securus, on the other hand, is not publicly traded. It's a private company. It's like every time I check, it, it seems like there's a different private equity uh, firm that has Securus and absorbs all the profits. It's a portfolio game. And there are people who have portfolios and are making money off of Securus and probably Core Civic who aren't even aware of it. I mean, it's just one of those things. That's how, you, that's how the stock market works. It's how your investment portfolio works. All right. Yes, sir. Um, especially troubling about this whole problem is the conflict of interest that policymakers have when they're heavily invested in these private prison enterprise. And I would put Mitch McConnell right at the top. He is up to his eyeballs uh -huh. in investments in these kind of schemes. Thank you. That's a good point. Mitch McConnell was a fraternity brother of mine. Sorry. Okay. Uh, to me, the, the real cost of incarceration is recidivism. Are there any figures that would tend to suggest that the recidivism is much higher with these private prisons, which means then the government is actually paying more money. If you could look at it that way, if there's data to show that, then you might have a very good economic reason not to use private prisons. Good point. Uh, and this also brings up the intersection of just the moral reasons why this is wrong and also the sort of practical reasons why this doesn't work. There is data about that. Yeah, it's all over the place, but a really good resource for getting information about this subject matter is prisonpolicy.org. Prisonpolicy.org. And there's a lot of different research and outcomes about that. I can't specifically answer that question, though. I get hung up on just the moral, what I call bankruptcy of the system. If I, if I, if I could just juxtapose this with 287G, there's a 287G contract many of you are aware of that is a contract that local law enforcement agencies make with ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is, by the way, a branch of the Department of Homeland Security. 
And that 287G contract basically makes local law enforcement who are part of that program functionaries of ICE. They can act as ICE officers and round people up on behalf of the federal government. We talk about how that's wrong because what that does is it endangers members of communities. Okay, so they're undocumented, but they're also running businesses and they have jobs and they're mowing your lawns and they're growing your food and they are doing a lot of things to make themselves useful citizens and they're getting picked up because they're undocumented. And what this does is it makes it a lot easier to round up these bodies and put them in these detention facilities. So I talk about how that's wrong for lots of reasons. It's wrong just because it's wrong. You don't break up families for that reason. But it's also fiscally stupid because they're a big part of the economy and what makes it work. They don't come here and get on welfare. They can't. They don't have Social Security numbers. They can't get welfare. They can't even get driver's licenses. All they do is come here and work and fuel the economy. That's what they do. So... There's that fiscal aspect of it, and there's also the fact specifically with respect to 287G, and Knox County has a contract with ICE. It costs the county taxpayers money to train them. It's getting the federal government off the hook of you know, having to, to bear any of the cost or the expense of that. All right, I, I grew up in East Tennessee. I, there was a time in my life when if somebody said, we're the federal government, and we want you all to pay for one of our programs. People would have been blowing up cars. I mean, that's just something that never happened in East Tennessee, ever. And now, it's, we have a sheriff. It didn't start with Sheriff Spangler. It began with Sheriff Jones. But we have you know, law enforcement who enthusiastically embrace this contract, and we have a public that increasingly doesn't like it, but they don't really know enough about it to know how it really hurts their pockets and not just their neighbors. So just let me uh, remind you that that contract is up for renewal in June. There's going to be a public hearing on it, and if you want to be there, you have a right to be there, and you also have a right to be heard, and I don't have the date. for. They moved the date around because the closer they get to it, they start putting it off and putting it off because they know that people are going to come and, and, and raise all kinds of, of fuss about it. But if you want to keep up with it, if you're on Facebook, there is a group called AKIN, A-K-I-N, Allies of Knoxville's Immigrant Neighbors. They publish everything that there is to know about the 287G contract. And I don't know if they have a specific website, so hopefully you can connect with them on Facebook if you go there. But that is a good resource for keeping up with that contract. It would be great if there was overflow crowd at that public hearing. It would be great if it got bigger every year because the sheriff he has every intention of renewing that contract because it keeps... You know, what he considers to be criminals off the streets. Most of the people who get picked up by ICE are picked up committing traffic offenses, by the way. That's, that's what they do because they can't get licenses. Yes, ma'am. Segwaying now from what you've just said to map the landscape of reform, I mean, if you see a change, if change ever comes to this or challenges to it coming at, will it be the judiciary, will it be Supreme Court decisions, but also is there legislation? One thing I love about what you just said is I think we all begin to think in these sort of big, grandiose terms, oh good, a Supreme Court decision will change everything. And you've just mentioned how 
local activism can make really profound change. So that was, that was really interesting. So, I mean, I'm really interested, of course, in all of these kinds of small ways that we can make lives for prisoners more humane and we can do this kind of thing, but of course, nothing substitutes for structural change. And I'm just curious what you see the possibilities for that. Um, I have an unorthodox, um, well, what I have is, I don't think that it's ever gonna change as long as it's profitable for people, all right? Mm -hmm. If you had protests and people going to the courthouse with signs, it's gonna be a nuisance to the people who want for this to keep going, but I don't think it's gonna change. Convict leasing didn't stop until it stopped becoming profitable. I don't think this will change until it stops being profitable. And the only way that I can foresee ending that kind of enterprise is to, you need to change, we need to change the way that we look at American business. Let me just say that. That's a very heavy question. It deserve, it, 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 it could take up, you know, a whole day of discussions. What about divestment? Is there any kind of major movement of, um, I, I feel like my own institution, I work at a college, has divested from prison investment. Yeah, you can shame yeah. private investors into divesting. Actually, right now, there's shareholder activism. Shane Bauer bought a single share in CoreCivic after he stopped working for them. If you own stock in CoreCivic, you're allowed to attend their annual shareholders meeting. I went to the protest last year in Nashville at their corporate headquarters annual shareholders meeting. I was there. It was raining and pouring. It was terrible. But at the end of it, the shareholders came out and the shareholder activists came out. And one of them who spoke to us, Alex Friedman, is specifically mentioned in the book. Alex Friedman owns stock in CoreCivic just so he can go to the shareholders meeting and scream at them and tell them what dirtbags they are. Uh-huh. And Shane Bauer was there and he was being kind of polite and pointing out what his experience experience was um, when he was a guard at Wynn, and the shareholders who were really just there to get rich and make lots of money were sitting there like, uh, when is this going to end? You know, they're not going to do anything different, but yeah. they have to listen to these people. So that's actually what goes on now. They get confronted inside by shareholders who have a right to be there, but divestment is a great idea. I'd love to yeah. see movements, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. outgrowth. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You've been talking mainly about the private institution, the privatized prisons. The public prisons, I think, are largely privatized also. They build a building and house the prisoners, but the food, the securus, the medical things are all contracted out, and so they're under the same profit constraints. Increasingly, yes. Not and everywhere, but increasingly. I think it's impossible for people to know how much these things are privatized and how much you can be invested or divested mm-hmm. in them. So I think the federal and the state prisons are really not all that much different than the private corporations. Good point. And, and that really jumps to the history of public prisons in this country, not much better. I mean, they were actively engaged in convict leasing. Brushy Mountain put its prisoners to work for free. 
digging coal. Public prisons are not, I'm not saying that they're more moral than private prisons, but there isn't a profit incentive there. My personal experience in dealing with the public prisons over the course of 30 years is I've watched, this is just anecdotal, the level of care of inmates worsen over the past 30 years. I've seen a change in how they're treated. And I've also seen more and more people being stacked in those prisons. And so it just creates the overcrowding problem that leads to so-called dependence on these private facilities. So um, I'd like to close with another very short reading, actually. It's an excerpt from when Bauer went to the shareholders meeting in Nashville. And it's Alex Friedman. This is, I, I really am a big fan of Alex Friedman. One of the activist shareholders at the meeting, Alex Friedman, stands and asks about the suicide of Damien Coastley, which, by the way, is covered in this book, um, where one of the inmates at Wynn committed suicide, which I wrote about for Mother Jones. Damien, he reminds everyone, weighed 71 pounds when he died. At the time of his death, due to his extreme weight loss, he looked like he'd been housed at Auschwitz. Those are Friedman's words. Someone sniffles. The faces in the room are utterly devoid of emotion. Friedman asks what Core Civic is doing to prevent suicides. Harley Lappin, the chief corrections officer, stands. Before joining CCA, he was the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, a position he left after being arrested for drunk driving. He said... We always regret when we lose a life. Suicide prevention is a high priority. We work with medical and mental health staff to develop new techniques. That is not true. It's a lie. It's the kind of pablum they offer you at shareholders' meetings to make them feel better about what they do. So that is... um, all I have to say at this time, there's a lot more to talk about, but I want to plug my little group, Face to Face Knox. We don't have a website because we are tiny, but we are dedicated to restoring the option of in-person visitation to Knox County jail facilities. We understand that we're not going to get rid of Securus. We're too small for that. I'd like to see Securus burn someday, but you know, I understand that it's there and that's life. But what the sheriff did in 2014 was convince Knox County Commission to approve a contract with Securus to provide then the option of video visitation, which is great if you're disabled and you've got a kid in jail, if you live too far away and you've got a kid in jail or any kind of loved one you know, that you want to communicate with, video visitation is a great way to do that. By the way, it can be done completely free. Nobody has to make billions of dollars off of that. It really doesn't have to happen that way, and it wouldn't really cost that much to, to make it free. But that's, that's another utopia. That contract was made in 2014. County Commission approved it. That was understandable. Immediately, Sheriff Jones eliminated, because it was his administrative prerogative to do so, he eliminated the option of in-person visitation and made it video only. You can do free visitation at a kiosk at the detention facility, but only at the kiosk, and you have to drive there to, to do it for free. So uh, we have a group that wants the option of in-person visitation restored because we believe that that is more humane, that 
it is immoral to force people to contribute to profiteering because they're poor and because they're in prison. So we meet sporadically, but if you want to keep up with what we're doing and get meeting notices, we're on Facebook at F numeral two F Knox. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to and sharing the Knox County Public Library podcast. Find other episodes and life-changing resources at knoxlib.org.